Hey, it's Greg Brady with Toronto Today. Thanks very much for finding the podcast for today, January 17th. Uh, the snow, a big story for our listeners, our audience, uh, and no sign of it stopping as I record this right now. So uh, it was a big emphasis on our show. Anthony Farnell talked about the historic nature of this particular storm that started last night, and we talk about it in a lot of contexts as well. Tracy Hogue, our guest as well. The one COVID thing we did do today was talk about that third vaccination, that booster for teenagers. It's a contentious issue. There's there's a lot of gray area on this. This is not a white or black conversation, as in you absolutely should take it or you absolutely should not. Myocarditis is a risk. For vaccinated people, it is far less of a risk. But in this age group, the difference between that second and third shot has some concern. So it's better to talk about it than sweep it under the rug. That and much, much more coming up, including some talk about the Buffalo Bills big weekend triumph. It's all on Toronto Today, and this Toronto Today edition starts now. You know me, I don't downplay things. I don't call things mild when they're severe. That was not a mild drive-in. No one's saying that, and we're going to get off to a bad start this morning if you keep putting words in my mouth. But either way, um, it wasn't as bad as I thought on the way in. I can see how bad it's going to get, and I can see why uh, school buses shouldn't be running today. We've got precious cargo, our children. Um, You know, I don't think anyone's ever pointed this out, but I do believe, I know this contradicts an awful lot of people, I do believe the children are our future. I do believe that. I'm not, I've had so many arguments with people saying, no, the kids aren't our future, and I'm like, I do believe the children are our future. Um, you know, I, and my goal is to teach them well and let them lead the way. So I, you can have a different opinion. That's fine. We can have a, you know, a glass of rosé or Chardonnay, and you can have a different opinion about our kids being the future. But I, I won't stand for it. I'll, uh, I'll walk out. I've done it before. Uh, at my, so my drive in probably not as bad as I thought. There wasn't as much. Um, problematic snow in the driveway i took the bigger car i had it already wiper fluid no stopping for gas i'm an idiot sometimes and i have to get gas at like 4 30 in the morning a few times a week you're going to be fine if you're going from point a to b uh this morning um i checked with dave on his drive uh gord rennie what was your uh what, what was your you and i are gonna have a, a cat fight over a saucer of milk because <laughs> you said now, you come a different way. You go 401, uh, you're on the 401 East coming from the west side, aren't you? No, I'm in Scarborough. No, you're in Scarborough. Okay, yeah. so you're coming the same way I am. Yeah. And I thought that the 401 was better. The DVP gets a little slippery because it's that downward slope. It's literally a hill for a little bit of time. And yes. so all you're watching is the brake lights ahead of you. That's all you're doing. is, And when they go on, a, a couple people put their brake lights on would look like hard and and for a lengthy amount of time and that's when you stress you're like i think i can stop i think i can stop because you're we're cutting in about what 82 80 85k an hour yeah that's, that's about, about what it was yeah. right yep but i was in just you know slightly ahead of you and but the oh th- i didn't wave i sorry about that that's Next okay time. that's okay you gotta you gotta concentrate someday you think actually someday i'll be here before you do you think that no one in management no. thinks that no 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 okay good that's not happening it's not but uh i was um i was about 10 minutes behind plows that just went down the DVP. So it was it was pretty well scraped away. And there was actually, you could actually see road. So my experience was slightly different. Normally, I would agree with you. The DVP <laughs> is just, you need like uh, four sets of hands on your steering wheel when you go down there. But uh, my experience was actually 
pleasant. Now, you and I used to work in the uh, same building for a long period of time. Were you ever uh, like late, late because of weather or an accident in front of you? I was late one time because of an accident, and uh, I was involved in it, and that was the oh, well, that's time. a great, that's an easy explanation. Yeah. See, I've been stopped. I was stopped for uh, speeding twice, and still made it in on time. Which oh, wow. that's a that you don't know, right? When the cop takes his, this isn't even weather related. This is more. Um, me wanting to be an F1 driver or something, or, or waking up <laughs> late, uh, or staying up too late the day before. Uh, but, you know, when that cop walks your stuff back to his car, you don't know if they're going to be three minutes or, or 19 minutes. You yeah. have no idea how long it's going to take. Sometimes they take forever. It's like, what are you doing? You're going back to my childhood history here? What's going on? That's a frightening prospect that they can look things up about you. That, But then again, I've had the same social insurance number since uh, since birth, yeah. uh, basically. So they could be doing that. But so I get like, I didn't, I thought it'd be worse. Did you not think it'd be like, I was thinking about it all yesterday. I knew it had to get up early, but I can see why around eight o'clock this morning, my gosh, if you got to drive 45 minutes on the DVP, you better plan for it to be two and a half hours if you had to go anywhere. Yeah, I was hoping that maybe it got a little stalled overnight and it wouldn't be as bad. But, I mean, I, I too thought it was going to be horrific. I think right now the, the worst of it is happening right now. Yeah, and then later today, right, wind. Yeah. Because that's the one thing. You walk out, you, it's not really blowing sideways in your face. It's not harsh when where the snow is, and there wasn't near as much on my car I went out for groceries last night around uh, ten fifteen, which is again really smart and timely. Um, and uh, and and went to. By the time I found a place that was actually open, because two of the grocery stores nearby closed at ten o'clock on a Sunday night. I get it. There's not that many people there. But when I get back, it is it's starting to accumulate. So it's been now we're at eight hours in now, and it's been it has not stopped snowing for eight hours, and yeah. we got at least three or four more to go here. Yeah, hopefully um, because there's more cars on the road, it. Uh it won't get so bad on the main arteries, but uh, it is just, everyone just take your time. Nothing is wor- uh, worth getting into an accident over. Well. <laughs> well <laughs> okay, you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's some small, What if you're going to pay exception? a ransom for a kidnapped pet okay. or something okay. like that? Yeah, that would, that, that's where you, you know, then you, you know, speed a little bit. Yeah, the, the percentages on that are probably kind of slim they did a big sketch in a really bad year of saturday Night live once uh they did a really bad uh sketch um when miami vice was hot so this was the year that randy quaid was on it that crazy bastard and they had uh <laughs> anthony michael hall robert downey but it was also john lovitz's first year dennis miller's first year so the year before was the big superstar year with billy crystal martin short and christopher guest so this is the 85 86 year and miami vice was big on television and i was a massive miami vice fan they did a show uh they did a sketch called cleveland vice but the concept was just like you couldn't have a lot of high-speed chases (laughs) because just because of the weather like it was really like chains were involved with tires and you know four-way flashers were being used instead of the overhead police lights and just it didn't really (laughs) Not sure the sketch landed, but it always reminds me of that. Like, nobody could really, like, nobody's getting a speeding ticket today. It's physically impossible to go 130 without self destructing on the DVP right now. I think it is. And if you don't have winter tires, maybe possibly consider not even driving today. Consider it strongly. Consider it strongly. Um, let me pivot to this because uh, I do think it's going to be something that ends up getting uh, some discussion today. Yeah, this would have ended up being a normal day for in-person learning. So it's it's going to be a little bit off. But, uh, but I saw this. Um, the next bastion is going to be universities. And we're going to talk to Dr. Eric Cam around bottom of the hour here. And I think it's going to be really, really interesting. 
about COVID policy at universities. I can't tell you the amount of parents. Um, if we go back to my original premise that the kid, the children are our future, I, you know, again, it's a credo I live by. It's, you can have any credo, but that's one of them. And uh, Harvard, if you're familiar with Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, they may be turning the tide here. We see the boat moving the other way down the river. You feel it, and I feel it, and I'm not... I'm not pushing the boat, but I am on the boat, okay? I understand how vital the next two weeks are. I understand some of what we've attempted to accomplish the last three or four weeks. This is the first time that schools have been closed in Ontario that I've adamantly opposed them being closed. And I wish it, it were out there alone as adults and kids as well because kids don't have a union kids don't have a voice kids aren't politicians don't seem terribly worried that kids aren't going to vote for them so they've kind of been left uh, adrift they really have okay um and eventually we'll start to realize what we've done here 10 years from now maybe 50 years from now when many of us are gone or or you know the age of uh, george burns he's not alive anymore i'm not trying to imply that he is but when we're all uh, that old or gone, we'll start to realize a half century uh, later every mistake we made in this process for the last couple of years and, and who we left behind and what we didn't get on soon enough and what we focused on too much of. And universities, I can't tell you how relieved I am that my kid is not going to university next year. We're not, I, I, I know that early days in 2020, what was the talk from a lot of parents? Would I take a gap year here? Would well, my kid. I, I'm, eventually, I think that was a uh, you know a best laid plan gone to waste. Because what would you do with a gap year? It's hard to find work. Work was difficult to find in 2020. Now it's easier, right, with labor shortages, etc. But travel? Would you travel the world? No. I mean, I had I had a year that I finished uh, OAC which was grade 13, obviously, in, and I finished in January. So before I start at Western in September as an undergrad, I had nine months off, and I had so much fun those nine months. I was still living at home most of the time, but I would go to ball games and concerts, and, and I went to Chicago for the first time. Um, I went to, you know, drove through New York State. Uh, there were things I did that I'd never done before, right? You've only been driving a couple of years by that point anyway, so a lot of, a lot of things are just brand new. And, uh, and so I think parents and, and university students, prospective university students, had that thought going into 2020 and the fall of 2020 year. Um, but every parent I hear from, look, I understand the arguments about elementary school and high school right now. You have virtually the safest, safest, um, fully vaccinated scenario you could possibly have is a healthy 18 or 19-year-old. It really is because they're not pushed into uh, groups, in essence, like five or six or seven-year-olds. And remember, those kids aren't the kids having sleepovers. Most aren't playing organized sports. So any concept of, again, you know where I am with mandating vaccines for that 5 to 11. I'm not for it. And we're going to have a chat later on today, by the way, with an epidemiologist. We're going to talk about the booster because we started talking about the third booster for teenagers, specifically teenage boys. I'm not done having that conversation yet, and I, it's one I urge you to listen to if you've got teenagers, okay? Um, but Harvard is turning around their policy where they, uh, they're turning around their isolation policy, and they're not going to do contact tracing anymore. And there's another thing that's coming as well, and I'll get to that in a second. But that's, this is the direction universities have to go. If universities now 
uh, I would be really hesitant to send my kid there. I want them to have the full experience. I don't want them wearing a mask in a lecture hall. I, I don't want them uh, being, you know, shunted into their residence room and not be able to socialize properly. I And you ha- you're paying for this. This isn't the public school system where, yeah, we pay via our taxes, but you've saved for sending your kid to university your whole life. I couldn't possibly do it next fall unless there's more safeguards, no pun intended, in place, that some of the safeguards they're using, which are totally nonsensical, aren't going to happen. So Harvard announced uh, just over the weekend a change in public health protocols as they're going to welcome students back. Thank goodness that they are. And uh, they're not they're, they were required to self-isolate for positive tests in the spring. That's going to change. They had to move into university-provided isolation housing. Last I checked, Harvard University was in Massachusetts in the United States, not just outside of where the Olympics are about to be held three weeks from now. Uh, Harvard University Health Services Director wrote in an email, the school's changed its COVID protocols in accordance with recommendations from public health experts and guidance from state and federal public health agencies, which is usually, usually with public health, a slippery slope because they're attempting to provide one size fits all guidance. And I hesitate to think that that's always the best thing. Here's the statement from uh, Jiang Nian. With our Harvard communities near universal vaccination, the majority of infected individuals in our community are having no symptoms or mild symptoms that resolve quickly. So Harvard University Health Services won't call students who test positive or reach out to close contacts. Affiliates who test positive will be responsible for notifying their own close contacts. The contact tracing is borderline impossible. It is impossible, and I've heard people mention it for our schools. I had that conversation with OSSTF President Karen Littlewood last week and documented that I'm good with PC, you know, PCR tests uh, should absolutely be utilized for people coming back to school. The province has to step up their game and provide the right amount of testing. They're not innocent bystanders here in my world. But everybody should get that this is where we're going. The other thing he wrote that I thought was fascinating, and I'll leave it here and get your reaction, the highly transmissible Omicron variant is driving a majority of cases we're seeing at Harvard, as is the case nationally. Last week, we reported 970 new infections at a time when campus density is relatively low, right? Kids are just getting back to school in the last eight, nine days from uh, a Christmas break. Um, Fully vaccinated individuals who test positive don't have to quarantine if they're asymptomatic. And that's where it's all going. We have to understand this. And you can scream about, you know, this and that and the other thing and, you know, uh, kids dying en masse at hospitals. I feel like the media would have sussed all that out and you'd know about it instead of hearing rumors and innuendo about it. Harvard's on the right track and we've got to move down that right track as well. Well, still focusing protection on those that are vulnerable. Eager to get right into our next conversation here. Um, We talked about this on Friday when uh, the breaking news came that Alfonso Davies, Canadian soccer superstar, uh, was suffering from myocarditis. Now, um, he had been vaccinated. Um, I've been told he's not boosted. There's a friend of mine that covers the Bundesliga over in Germany where he plays with Bayern Munich. But he's double vaccinated, not third vaccinated. This guy's 20 years old, healthy as a horse, our, uh, our shining bright light for Canadian soccer. Uh, the best player ever. And he can't legally drink in the United States yet. 
So, but the concept here was some people pointed out, hey, you, you got to make the point that he's vaccinated. Well, I did do that, but there are concerns even among vaccinated uh, kids for parents, and some doctors have this concern. It's not a black white debate. There's so much gray matter and nuance about um, the uh, risk benefit of a third shot. And you know, and I know that a year ago at this time, Let's say for your 12-year-old, we were starting to talk about, I don't know, will we get to herd immunity without a vaccine for kids? But it wasn't universal that that was going to happen. Now, if I told you your 12 or 13-year-old will be mandated to get three shots in, what, a nine or 10-month span? A year ago at this time, you would have been like, hold up. What's that all about? So someone who knows what it's all about and the safety of it and the debate about it is Dr. Tracy Hogue. She's an uh, epidemiologist out in Sacramento, California, and gets up early for us here in Toronto today. This is an important conversation. The the you know the goalposts are kind of moving here. Uh, what can you tell us about the importance to to you know get the right information, especially with the uh, Omicron variant? Um, so it's a, it's an urgent discussion. I think that we need to have. Um, I, I really think that there should be, and, and especially now that we're talking about booster of Pfizer, was higher than the risk of hospitalization for COVID nineteen over a, a one hundred and twenty day period. So not not overall, but um, we. So I, I knew kind of early on that there, there, the, the risk was not something um, that we should be ignoring. It was something where we should be like talking about, should we just use one dose in these kids? And, mm-hmm. um, and then so after our study came out, there have been multiple studies and national databases that have found higher rates of myocarditis after vaccination than we found actually by, by far um, in, in boys. It's predominantly after the second dose. Um, and you know, there, there hasn't been like a really thorough discussion about that. And, um, I, I really think that there should be, and, and especially now that we're talking about boosters in this age group, because we still haven't defined the benefit of if there, you know, if there is one of the booster, um, for, uh, for children and young adults, especially young adults, you know, children to twenties you know, 20 up to 30 years old, it's a really a big question of how much benefit will they get from a booster dose? Um, And then, uh, you know, even, even the Pfizer uh, data, they, they basically said the predominant benefit for children from the, from the booster dose is going to be in terms of preventing a breakthrough case. Well, now we know that that, you know, the, the mRNA vaccine's ability to do that is, uh, is dwindling very quickly, especially with the Omicron variant. Um, So it's a, it's an urgent discussion. I think that we need to have of, you know, how many doses and for which children and when, and what are the real serious risk factors for children for, and young adults for uh, mm. severe COVID-19 and who's going to benefit from the, the booster and who may not, who may be at greater risk of, of a myocarditis from the vaccine. Dr. Tracy Hogue is our guest on Toronto today with uh, Greg Brady on uh, 640 Toronto. Um, and she's joining us from California. She's an epidemiologist. The That's just it, isn't it? That the, the evidence has, it, it may have existed at one point. It may have existed in what I'd call the Delta era. And it was the hope of everybody that vaccination would prevent infection and spread. And for a while, some of the data really backed it up uh, to the point where you're six times less likely to spread, eight times less likely to spread. I looked at probably the, some of the same studies you did. That that has um, that 
lead, if you will, has been you know shaved down somewhat. And now we see that uh, that though you know the vaccinations are meant and almost uniquely are meant to prevent severe disease, especially the more the more you need it, the more it'll prevent it is the hope. But it is not it is not preventing infection. It is not preventing spread. And, and Omicron kind of it kind of changed a lot of conversation about um, the potential for the boosters to to do what they were meant to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I and you know, I want to say that um I was very strongly advocating for everyone in my clinic where I work, you know, to to get uh, to get vaccinated as soon as possible in the beginning because it was really looking like the data were all pointing to the fact that it was preventing transmission and especially mm-hmm. when you work with older patients, you know, you want to protect them to the greatest extent possible. And, um, you know, as we started going down, we we saw initially, you know, that the vaccine efficacy, how effective it was against preventing infection was waning, you know, even a few months, you know, after the second dose, even before Omicron variant. Um, And so we knew that that was becoming an issue. And then with the Omicron variant, you know, data from Denmark and data from Ontario um, are, are really showing that it, you know we're we're just not seeing um, much protection now from that booster dose and what there is it's it's waning fast against the Omicron variant. Is there an age? What is the age for? Let's even isolate it to males, uh, Doctor Hogue, where you'd say certainly you know everything has to get everything's on an individual basis. It's my been my big problem. Um, before I ask the question, I'll say it's been my big problem right away. Is that public health, whether it's the CDC in your country, whether it's Health Canada or, or things here in Ontario, health is never one size fits all. Risk benefit is never one size fits all. And, and what's good for, you know, um, my 76 year old mom to avoid at Christmas time, I don't think two 20 year olds should struggle the, with the idea of, of if they're vaccinated, getting inside a pub and, and seeing each other after four or five months old high school friends. So one size fits all health recommendations don't work. But if we drill down and I said, what is the age for a male where you'd go, you certainly should get boosted. Is it 30 and over? Is it 35 and over? Like when we do a risk benefit analysis on some of that data, especially the recent study you quoted from Denmark, is there a number you'd look at and say, it's probably around here? Right. So good question. Okay. So um, this is, like you said, this is dependent on an individual's health. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are young people who are severely immune compromised, um, who have immune deficiency syndromes, who may be recipient of a bone marrow transplant. You know, these are very high risk individuals who like you, you just cannot address these situations with a large population database, right? So, but if we're looking at the studies that we have, you know, from Israel, looking at the benefits of boosters across the ages, so they were not in their 5 million person population, they were not able to detect a benefit of boosters for people under 40, right? And Mm -hmm. this is, this is also consistent with the data that I've been looking at in Denmark, that it's really hard to see a benefit um, and actually in the Danish data, I think it's because they have a very healthy population. You really can't see it under the age of 60. And so um, it, it's going to depend on, on your own health factors. But for the, the predominant myocarditis risk that we've been identifying has been between the ages of 12 and 25. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for that group, and that's that, again, is predominantly but not exclusively in, in males, um, and so for that group, you know, if we're not actually able to say, detect a benefit, a, a, you know, a large 
population level of the booster, you know, but we know that there's this risk of myocarditis, then we need to uh, employ the precautionary principle, which is first do no harm, right? So until we know there's a benefit of this booster and that population, we really probably shouldn't be recommending it to people under the age of 25, you know, especially males, um, or, or at least not mandating it. You can certainly offer it and make right. it a decision yeah. with the individual person or child and family and their physician. Um, and I encourage everyone to discuss this with their physician and their pediatrician, like what is the best option for me or my child or our family, but to require it or mandate it is taking an entirely different step when the benefits are very uncertain and there, there are known harms, albeit rare. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you put it in, in that context, um, because I mentioned that Alfonso Davies story and he's like, again, you know, an elite, elite athlete. At the age of 20. Now, people pointed out to me and and, and he was recovering from COVID-19, got back on the practice practice uh, field on the pitch. And then they and then they identified myocarditis and people made the point to me, rightly so. Your risk is potentially greater to um, get myocarditis if you're not vaccinated. But there, look, there are conflicting studies, like I said. But but my point back to them was is that I don't know if he was boosted or not, but that's a human being that in <laughs> if he needs to be boosted, protecting against severe illness, then we're all in big trouble. If a 20-year-old elite athlete in the 99.9th percentile of, of fitness and health needs a third shot, um, we're, uh, you know, we're all, uh, we're all pooched as it were. It just didn't make sense to me. And I don't know no. if he, if he, if he need, had that third shot or not. So I understand vaccination, but this is, this is to your point about the mandates. I just I I struggled with it and pushed back. There's some politicians that wanted in school. We don't have enough real world data. You can't ask people to make that call about their kids. It may be a vaccine that joins all the other vaccines someday. Maybe it does in terms of being mandated to go to school or to be certain places. But to ask parents to, uh, you know, to, to coerce parents into doing and there's only if they refuse, Dr. Hogue, there's only one person that loses out. The kid does a six year old staying home because the parents didn't agree to vaccinate him. The six year old loses, not the parents. That's right. And and people forget that for a lot of these children, it's not their choice. It's the right. parent's choice. And when we need to be asking the question, like, why, why do the politicians want that? You know, is it is it because they think that it's preventing spread in the schools? And do we have data to show that it is? You know, we have this study from Lancet Infectious Disease that looked at actually Delta and they looked at vaccinated on vaccinated people. There was actually no difference of spread within the homes between vaccinated unvaccinated people. So, you know, so so we, we need to consider that, like what what are the benefits of doing that? And then what are the harms, you know, to young people, like in terms of of school, like I think is the greatest example because asking them to do virtual school or having them miss out on sports um, because they're not vaccinated and maybe because it was a choice that their, you know, parents made. That is that is hugely problematic. I mean, I think we both know the harms to children from them, you know, doing virtual learning or not having access to sports. I mean, I I, I do actually think it's it's ridiculous. It's very problematic to have and, a and, mandate. And you haven't seen much. I haven't seen much. Every study I see that says it spreads more in schools, I see, especially in a post-vaccination universe, I see a study that says, 
it's community spread. There's just, there was very little definitive. And so I try not to be definitive on that, but that again um, encourages and empowers, I think, parents to choose. If you, if you think your kid um, has to be at home, then you should keep that kid home, but you can't stop you know, the vast majority of people who think schools are safe for their vaccinated kids, no less, um, and put every to put everybody on home as we've been in Ontario the last two weeks. There's complications with hospital capacity and whatnot. Uh, but at the same time, uh, to your point, like the, I, I haven't seen a definitive study. And boy, the medical community sure isn't universal that it spreads more in schools, not by a long shot. So, yeah, I mean, so I was the senior author on the this Wood County, Wisconsin study that was published by the CDC. And we actually found that students were 20 times more likely to get COVID outside of school than inside of school. Um, we had an incredibly low rate of in-school transmission in our study. Now that was pre-Omicron, actually pre-Delta as mm -hmm. well. But one has to remember that, you know, the ratio of where it's being spread is not expected to change that much. And we're still seeing that that Omicron and Delta, they were predominantly being spread in the in the home environment. And that's understandable. You spend many more hours, you know, in the in the, in the home environment. So, and, you know, kids people, are still having sleepovers. They're still oh, yeah, coming into backyards. They're, 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 sw they're swimming. They're play having, playing yeah. video games together. This is what they do. They're supposed to do that. There's a reason we hadn't closed schools before, because, you know, when kids are not in school, they're they're doing other things. They are other places. They're hanging out with their friends, you know. Mm -hmm. So is it going to change the pandemic trajectory to to close the schools? You know, probably not. We haven't seen good evidence that it does. Um, so. So, yeah, um, I know that there was a, about the the point about the hospitalizations I wanted to get to as well. Sure. Well, um, yeah, we I think, we, it, I think we've know. struggled with in Ontario. We put it this way. We went up to an ICU. Uh, we flooded the ICUs in the spring as our most vulnerable. So we, we were a little bit behind you uh, in the in the states in terms of getting vaccinated and, and getting approval for both Pfizer and Moderna. Um, and then we went through a big controversy with AstraZeneca, which I know never got approved by um, right. you know, uh, the United States. But that said, we were pushing 900 plus in the spring. And that's that's too much, even in a province for 15 million with socialized health care. There's benefits for it. I, I lived in the States on a two tier system. There's some benefits for that. But either either or we we pushed it up to 900. We haven't peaked past 580 here in this wave, but the problem Dr. Hogue has been, it's been staffing, right? It's been, it's been, mm -hmm. uh, staffed beds and locations. And, and, uh, so I, you know, we've really locked down again in bad weather, no less, where you just can't go outside for very long. It's one thing to lock down in May lockdowns are abysmal anyway, but to not even be able to go outside and throw a football around or, or ride your bike anywhere for seniors to get exercise, like it's walk yeah. down an icy sidewalk every day for two hours. It's been a lot of problems with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we need to have like balance in what we're doing and look at the trade-offs. I mean, I, I I definitely see with my patients the effects of not being able to go to the gym and not being mm -hmm. able to lead their normal lives and depression from not being able to be with their friends. And, you know, with the with the hospitalizations, you know, I, I, I we we need to be increasingly looking at um what is causing the hospitalizations, even where people um, you know, test. COVID positive, we're seeing more and more data come out showing, you know, these are a lot of these are incidental COVID positives that are being, you know, 
called COVID, but they're, they are being hospitalized for other reasons now than COVID-19. And I know that's incredibly controversial to say, but the more and more databases are showing that to be, to be the case. Um, and we shouldn't ignore that. And it, you know, a lot of that is a reflection of our vaccines being actually incredibly effective at preventing mm-hmm. severe disease. Um, and I, and I want to highlight that because I don't want people walking away from this thinking that I'm anti-vax, which I'm anything, but I'm incredibly pro-vax and, and, you know, I'm very, um, happy that my parents got their boosters and I feel like, you know, greatly protected by that. And, and, um, you know, but, but as, you know, people are, more and more protected by the the vaccine and with a milder variant, you know, we're going to actually be seeing more of our hospitalizations where people test positive for COVID are actually, well, you know, it was a trauma. They went in for a hip replacement or something and they happened to test positive for COVID. So we need to know that, um, you know, what the reason for hospitalization is. And then we also need to be looking at, you know, our policies. I mean, the last thing that we want is for our policies around the virus to be causing, you know, uh, excess problems and not, you know, contributing to the solution. And I sometimes worry um, with all, you know, we've we've already discussed the firing of employees for not, you know, being vaccinated and the problems that that's caused. But um, I mean, we we really need to be better at looking at the trade-offs of what we're doing. Um, It was wonderful having you on the show. You're a great guest. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right. Uh, very happy to have uh, Global News' chief meteorologist on, uh, Anthony Farnell. Um, boy, it, this is really something. And you listed uh, the Toronto Pearson's top 10 January days. We, 36.8 centimeters of snow in 1966. But we look almost a sure thing to be, what, over 30 and, and pushing that? Yeah, uh, we're there now. We're we're yeah. already uh, 30 to, I've seen some reports of closer to 35 already. And that has happened just in the last couple hours. That's how crazy this storm is, the snowfall rates that we're seeing. And uh, on radar, I, I see it starting to, to at least weaken a little bit, that initial crazy band. But uh, still, we're, we're in this for, for at least the next few hours. So you see maybe, what, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, it'll taper off. Uh, and I know we're getting wind in the afternoon. Wonderful uh, to blow all this everywhere if we haven't uh, stored it properly. But 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock for it ceasing? Yeah, at least tapering off to just scattered flurries. But you mentioned that wind, and that becomes the big problem. If you've been outside this morning, if you've, you've yeah. done that shoveling before it's finished, I know you hate it, but <laughs> if, if, you're, if you're one of those, you, you notice how light and fluffy it is. And I, I kind of call this Hollywood snow, where it doesn't even feel real, uh, or Superman snow, because you feel like a superhero when you're out there shoveling it. It's so easy. But that also means that as these winds pick up, we're going to see this blow around drifting uh, up over a meter drifts you're going to get uh, in on some roadways. So uh, this is the type of situation, and I, we knew it yesterday. We knew the timing was everything. And the fact that that band came through right before the morning commute, before the schools opened, that there were going to be cancellations all over the place and, and that snow plows weren't going to be able to keep up. And, and that's just what we've seen. I'm going to get to schools with you for sure. Anthony Farnell, uh, Global's chief, uh, Global News' chief meteorologist, our guest. You forecast this, I swear. I'm listening in the car uh, before Alex Pearson's show because we simulcast, obviously, your 6 o'clock news. And you mentioned the storm on Monday on Thursday night. So this one had a lot of advance notice. 
It did. And, and there were still some questions even going into the weekend because of this sharp gradient, this uh, snowfall rate that that we knew was going to either be a 30-plus centimeter storm or quite a bit less as you go to the west. If you're if you're closer to Lake Huron or, or Georgian Bay, this is not a big storm mm-hmm. for these areas. So this is kind of the opposite of what we would typically get where the cottage country ski hills get a ton of snow and we get barely anything in the city. No, this is, this is a GTA storm, and uh, even more so as you go towards the Niagara where there's been lightning strikes all night. It's just been a, a wild setup for them as well. Well, and people can, I think people, to, as you put it, um, we, can, we can make our lives a lot easier by properly shoveling, scraping the cars, because as, we do, as you documented, wind in the afternoon, a lot colder overnight, so a lot colder 24 hours from now than it is right now. That's when the snow gets um, get, get, doesn't get light and fluffy anymore. That's when, like, scraping the car and brushing the car was a breeze this morning. There was a lot of volume, but nobody had to scrape. Tomorrow, tomorrow morning we will if you don't take care of this today. Yeah, this is one of those storms that that comes around not even every five or six winters. This is kind of once a decade mm-hmm. type event where you get this much snow. So if you don't have to go anywhere, yeah, take your time, enjoy shoveling, take the kids out to, to you mentioned tobogganing or, or or anything to do, just play and make a fort because this is one of those days that that I think a lot of people are going to remember. And for sure, myself as a meteorologist, we we always look at past storms and how they compare. Uh, I mean, in the last decade, there have been few that have dropped this much snow in such a short period of time on the city. And uh, we're going to have these snow banks now for quite some time because the the temperature doesn't really warm up above freezing for very long. Anthony Farnell, Global News Chief Meteorologist, our guest, just a couple more minutes with him. And and I know with uh, climate change, we watch the temperature very carefully and and we need a gradual melting of this, don't we? It's not quite what happened in, uh, in, in British Columbia, in Abbotsford about six weeks ago but it's something that everybody keeps an eye on uh, uh, don't they we don't we don't want it to all of a sudden be six degrees three days from now because flooding and uh, and and rivers lakes it's a major concern exactly yeah this is uh the snowpack i mean this is one system but we're going to get a bit more snow wednesday we're, we're going to see what i think uh, is a, a very interesting and active second half of january so that doesn't just include snow chances mm-hmm. Uh, the Great Lakes still have a lot of open water, so lake effect's going to be a, a big deal coming up with, with some of the cold that comes in late this week, next week, the follow. Uh, we have to remember, it is mid-January, so we expect some of the cold is there still to come, and uh, now we have this deep blanket of snow that, that sometimes can lead to, to some very cold nights, and, and I think we'll see that as, as we go through the next week. You mentioned this uh, on on Twitter, uh, and you said we got to prioritize snow days for kids, and I'm hearing this universally from, <laughs> from parents, I mean from parents, from teachers, from kids. We've all been through enough. Our brilliant teachers have been through enough, and they were ready, obviously, to get in their cars and drive into the schools today and, and get, be in class for the first time in 31 days. So the last thing they want is an email at 8.30 at night uh, for a a well-predicted storm days in advance to say, hey, how about teaching online tomorrow morning? The The whole plan ends up being different that way. That's not right. Yeah, I, I I was shocked yesterday when I when I kind of saw that because I, I know I remember as a kid just uh, just looking forward to to snow and and it, it changes everybody's overall mindset. If you still have to work the same as you would any other day, let's let 
they don't happen very often, and, and there are times, of course, for online learning, but why not just let people maximize the amount of time they can just go outside and, and play? Whether you're a kid or maybe an adult with kids, you, you can still play on a day like today. Yeah, uh, we'll be watching t- the dog walking forecast. As many small dogs will be lost in the volume of snow. So if you got an Alaskan Malamute, I get it. But if you're taking a little Shih Tzu out, it's problematic. I'm about to take my dog Storm out now. I am worried. We'll, we'll stick to the sidewalk. Put him in high tops. Yeah, that's the only way. Uh, that's the only way around this. Anthony, thanks for making time for our show. Uh, big fan. Appreciate it. All right, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, enjoy your day today. It's going to be uh, a day in which uh, it's going to be difficult outside of, you know, getting out on a snow hill or skiing, snowshoeing. is tough, right? Like we've talked about the gyms being closed for these uh, seniors. Stop looking at me. I'm not one of them. But I see these seniors at the gym, and I knew in December, um, if and I didn't see this coming. I really didn't. I didn't think we were closing up to this extent. But, yeah, uh, hey, don't worry. Just go for a walk. Uh, it, this may not be the day to do that, uh, all told. Uh, our friend Dr. Eric Cam from uh, X University joins us now, economics professor. He's often on with Roy Green, by the way, as well. Our fantastic national show uh, right here on this chorus radio station, 640 Toronto, between 2 and 5 o'clock. All right, but Real quick, let's get this out of the way. Five NFL games in the book. How scintillatingly awesome is it that the Cardinals and Rams play tonight and we get another game? Well, it's seemingly awesome because maybe the game won't be a blowout. Uh, I couldn't believe the number of games this weekend that were over right after the National Anthem. We had two good and- ones, right? San Fran Dallas was compelling and Vegas Cincinnati had a, a lot of back and forth to it. But that's it. You're right. Two out of five. But that was it. But I mean, you know what? If you you know, if you're like a baseball fan and you love hitting home runs and watching home runs, well, if you're a football fan and you like watching long touchdown passes, then this was the weekend for you. And you saw many, many quarterbacks that you wish wore aquamarine and orange, but don't. Sure. And so, you know, all in all, it was an exciting weekend. And hopefully tonight will be a good game. But given what I saw, I don't know. It, it looks like blowout weekend. Mm, yeah, I think tonight will be uh, tight. Uh, Matt Stafford's been on that Lions team forever and has a couple playoff losses, so this could be his first playoff win. And uh, the winner of this game uh, obviously goes and, and ends up playing uh, playing a pretty pretty massive game uh, in Tampa against uh, the defending champions. So I'm just I'm excited. I'm excited. There's another game. I can't see it being a game either team wins by you know 14 points. Cannot. No, and I, I, I don't like to do prognostications because basically I, I couldn't predict anything. You predict, but... rece- you predict recessions and economic upturns all the time. Yeah, and I predicted six out of the last five correctly. <laughs> but tonight I'm going to take the – I'm actually going to take the, the Rams to win. I think they've got more big-time players. And I heard Mrs. Matthew Stafford on the radio yesterday, and she told people to stop booing her husband. So that should pretty much push the – well, just think how Mrs. Cam feels when uh, your lectures go sideways and booing comes from the back of those halls. You know, when we used to all gather in person safely. Greg, I'm not even a household name in my own household. Who are you That's kidding? important. That's important. So I mentioned this policy for Harvard. Uh, Harvard seems to me, um, that's a real, this is really something, and it probably is the way universities have to go, but they're going to stop, um, you know, they're going to stop making uh, fully vaccinated, often boosted students isolate. They're going to stop uh, al- preventing uh, asymptomatic students from coming to school. Everybody's vaccinated. They're there. 
that's probably where we're going. And that tells me two things. One, um, that maybe donors and parents are starting to complain a little bit. Um, and I feel like until we get loud about things and we're starting to, and that's moving the ball in the other direction down the field, um, you know, education is going to, it, it's just going to say stagnant until we say, I think we're all capable of mitigating risks and people want to pay full freight for university tuition. If we're doing that, my kids in class and my kids having a normal college existence. Well, this won't surprise you. There's a lot of really smart people at Harvard. Uh, and one of the things that they do well is the balance between student life, student learning, mental health. These are things that Harvard has been ahead of the curve on for many years. And they understand that when people are paying good money to send their children to university, that they want a full fledged university experience. So Harvard's been trumpeting this for a very long time that what we need to do is vaccinate our campus from the groundskeepers up to the president, mm -hmm. make sure the students are vaccinated and then get people back to school where learning is most effective. And they've been a leader in this from day one. And you're right. I mean, there is only we talk a lot about off ramps and where are we going? There's only one off ramp when it comes to higher education. And I don't care if it's in Cambridge, Massachusetts or Toronto, Ontario. We've got to get our students back into lecture halls and uh, anything else is foolish. Anything else is a waste of money. And you mentioned my daughter, who is going to take one of these proverbial gap years. This would have been her year to apply to university and go, but a little bit more mature than the average. She looked at the tea leaves and said, I don't want to go and learn online from my university experience or be trapped in my residence room taking courses online. So Sydney is going to do an extra half year of high school and then probably work for a mm -hmm. bit. But but you're right. I mean, I'm I'm plagiarizing your words when you say off ramp. There's only one off ramp. There's only one way to go. We have to get students and educators vaccinated back in the lecture hall so that university education, which is getting more and more expensive, is actually worth the money. Am I out there uh, on a limb? And is it too far for me to say that the average university in in, in Ontario has as tight or tighter COVID restrictions than a retirement home does? They're not letting some kids eat and drink in residence now. It's madness. It is. It is madness. It's super tight. I mean, we don't want to I don't want to conflate long term care homes, of course, with universities, because one is full of generally older people with comorbidities and one is full of young people looking for the best deal on beer. But you're right. Universities are locked down tight right now. There is nowhere to go and there's nothing to do. And even for those of us that stayed home to go to university, you went away to university. That's just not an experience that you're right. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what are kids going to remember? And I talk about this all the time. It, it breaks my heart that my four years of high school were the four best years of my life in terms of socialization. And my high school, that special place to me where my daughter attends now means absolutely nothing. Can you imagine a generation of students for whom their undergraduate experience means sitting in their bedrooms in their parents' house learning online? There's not I mean, a lot of school spirit, man. Like, it's impossible. I don't blame the kids, and I sure don't blame a lot of the teachers. I think, I, you know, it, it is really tough to feel emotionally attached to a school that you, you don't have a locker. You didn't go to a dance. You're not on a team. You're not in a club. I don't know how you would feel it emotionally attached to a school what about emotionally attached to a school board now again i know that nobody out there is going to have a pity party for tdsb teachers but i happen to be married to one that had to set her alarm for 5 30 this morning so she could be awake at six o'clock this morning when the tdsb sent out a twitter 
a tweet, whatever you call it, saying, are you going to school? Are you not going to school? And, and what should you do? How can you like some people like we're, we're very lucky here. We don't have great issues with child care and things like that. But what if you do? And what the PDSP tells yeah. you you have to wait until two and a half hours before the school bell, before you can make plans for your children or your parents. I mean, it is it's it's it is. This is lunacy. This is absolute lunacy on the part of the Toronto District School Board. And while they do sign my wife's paychecks, that doesn't give them leeway to treat their teachers like garbage. I think it was an absolute lack of respect, knowing that this storm was coming, knowing the transition from uh, online uh, getting back into the classroom today that, you know, if that email comes out Sunday at noon, guess what? It's easier to switch it back and call it off. Um, than it is to to do exactly what they did. And I heard from so many teachers, they're not the only board doing it, but they're the most prominent one. And uh, and again, you know, I, I, I love this part of it because a bunch of teachers forwarded me the email. We recognize that the timing of this, this decision was not ideal. Well, then own it and be accountable. Who's responsible? Give me a name. Give me a person that's responsible, knowing that the timing of this decision is not ideal. Because, yeah, a lot of things aren't ideal. Online schooling's not ideal. But own this and, and stop treating your teachers like they're, they're commodities. And it sure doesn't say much for how, what they think of their kids in that, in that particular board. And I think this is going to be the legacy for us, uh, especially for people that talk to other people, um, is the term leadership. Where the hell has leadership gone? And I don't care if it's the Toronto District School Board or a university faculty association, university administration. I don't care if it's uh, CUPE and part-time instructors. I mean, these people have shown, in my opinion, very little bordering on no leadership and if you're not going to get leadership from the top how do you expect it to flow down the organizations and i just i think that's what's lost here is that nobody seems to want to take responsibility for education in ontario and 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 even beyond ontario but i live here and someone finally Someone's got to say, okay, we're in charge and here's the way it's going to go because we've consulted with the doctors and the science table and the educators and here's an informed decision. And you shouldn't have your the, the country's largest school board having its teachers sitting there at 10 to 6 no. going, I wonder if I'm taking a shower and going to school. No. If school is canceled, there's no school. If schools are open, come the hell in. That's it. That's the email. And that <laughs> all this all this pivoting to the virtual and all that makes zero, zero sense. So, um, you know, they're, they're not going to get much response to this today or, uh, or or certainly love for me. And as I've put it a couple, few different times, they've had a year all right uh, at that particular uh, school board for many reasons. I got to leave it there. Thanks very much. Enjoy Cardinals Rams tonight. Stay healthy, Greg. NFL time uh, on uh, Toronto today. Let's talk about these weekend games, especially what happened in uh, Orchard Park on Saturday night. And by the way, we're not done. I keep forgetting. I can't forget. Winner of tonight's game, Cardinals at the Rams. Matt Stafford's got a chance to do something he is never able to do, do in Detroit, and no no quarterback has for uh, 31 years now. Win a playoff game. Uh, Matt Stafford now with the L.A. Rams, because Eric Kramer went uh, elsewhere after he won in Detroit and won a playoff game for the Bears. So it can be done. It can be done, um, but it's Cardinals-Rams tonight. Uh, what a gift, uh, especially on a snow day like this. Part of uh, WGR's fantastic crew, including John Murphy and former offensive lineman Eric Wood, is Sal Capaccio, and he joins us now to talk about Saturday and that uh, revenge match against the Chiefs next weekend at Arrowhead. Sal, what a fan of uh, your work. I am and many are. Thank you for coming on the airwaves here in Toronto with me. First of all, 
spend too long, man. I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for asking me to come on. I really appreciate it. And uh, you as well. You know, we love having you guys on down here. And, you know, when the Bills are successful, I know we got a lot of fans up there north of the border that want to hear about them. So it's my pleasure to join you. Second of all, you're right, man. I think about, I was just, as you were talking about Detroit, this might be the season for exercising demons, right? I mean, you had what happened Saturday night in Orchard Park with the Bills and the Patriots, and then you had the Bengals win. And, you know, they, they had been the longest playoff drought as far as a win is concerned. A team that had gone the longest without winning in the playoffs. And then they won. And then now tonight, Matt Stafford has a chance to win a playoff game as well. Yeah, it's rather remarkable. Um, and, and I think about even just exercising those AFC East demons. And I, I've said this for a while, and you and I might have even had a discussion about it. So much of the AFC East in the last 20 years is, is sure, it's about Belichick and Brady and the infrastructure there. But it's also been the Jets, Dolphins, and Bills collectively just not being able to settle on a plan or making the wrong pick or not being able to get out of their own way. Lots of credit to the Patriots, but some of it's been the dysfunction of other three franchises. Well, the worms certainly turned now. No doubt about it. And, you know, there's a lot of thoughts about how, you know, going forward this all looks. And first of all, there's obviously a huge gap at quarterback, right? And what we saw for 20 years was that huge gap at quarterback. Mm-hmm. They had Tom Brady, and no one else had Tom Brady, right? You couldn't, no one else could have a guy like that maybe ever again. We'll see. But now the Bills have Josh Allen, and he's going to be around here for a long time. And I give Mac Jones credit. I think he had a really nice rookie year, but he's not Josh Allen, and I don't think his ceiling is anything ever close to what Josh Allen is even currently playing at right now. Um, and, and that's going to be a big gap. And then I look and think, we had this discussion on air on this morning. Look, I, I understand it's kind of sacrilege to talk this way about Bill Belichick in any way, and I'm not trying to diminish any, diminish any of his accomplishments. He's the most accomplished coach in NFL history. I don't refer to him as the greatest coach because I think he had Tom Brady, which made him a great coach. But he's built a team, it seems like, that he tries to kind of win like it's 1990 again. Mm-hmm. With tight ends, spending money on tight ends and running the ball. Where are the weapons on the outside? Insulate your rookie quarterback. Have smart guys that are versatile on defense. But they were slow on defense. And, look, I think until Bill Belichick understands that, hey, I don't have Tom Brady to cover up all my warts, but he woke up in a time machine, right? He went to sleep at night in 2000, had Tom Brady for 20 years, wakes up, he doesn't have Tom Brady, and he doesn't understand that the game has changed. So I think that going forward, this is going to be the story for a while, and the, the Patriots are going to have a, a lot to do to catch the Bills. I think I think so, and, and the Jets and Dolphins have tons to prove as well. It's 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 Buffalo's division uh, for the time being. Sal Capaccio is our guest from WGR 550. Um, the evolution of the fans' opinion of Josh Allen. When he was drafted, I, and you know for forever and a day, it was the search for a quarterback. And the, pri- the year before, it's important for listeners to know, they traded out of the number 10 spot that became Patrick Mahomes. Now some teams s- were silly and passed on Patrick Mahomes, leaving him until number 10. But that ended up being Buffalo's pick. The next year, they take Josh Allen behind deep quarterback draft, right? Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold with Josh Rosen going three picks after. What was the interpretation of the pick at the time? And then even, even a year into thing, people thought, we don't know about this guy yet, right? Yeah, I mean, look, he was one of the most polarizing prospects we've ever seen drafted in the NFL. Whether to the Bills or anyone else, I remember football outsiders literally wrote, He's a parody of an NFL quarterback prospect. That's what they wrote about him because all the analytics suggested, like, this is never going to work, all the numbers. This has never worked before. If the Bills make this work, they'll be the complete outlier ever. Well, guess what? I guess they're the complete outlier ever because the Bills have made it work. Josh Allen is an elite NFL QB. He's playing at an MVP level. He was the runner-up to league MVP last year Had another fantastic season this year. And now I will say, I think Josh went to a great situation, right? And situation really matters. I've often said, Greg, and I don't think – I don't want to go too extreme on this, but I do believe this, which is 
I think if Josh Allen gets drafted by the Jets and Sam Darnold gets drafted by the Bills, I want, I don't think Josh is nearly who he is today. I think he's still a good player, but he, he would have so much chaos surrounding him. They wouldn't have the structure in place and the plan in place. And I think Sam Darnold would be a pretty good quarterback, but he wouldn't be Josh Allen. What he is right now, you know, and, and I think that's a big deal. You think about all the different turnover that Baker's had and all the turnover that Sam Darnold's had. He's on another team now. Even Lamar went through a couple different offensive coordinators. So I think Josh has gone to such a st- stable, good organization, which wasn't like that for a long, long time, that they figured out the right pieces and the formula just in time with the Bagulas and Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott. And at the time, yeah, a lot of polarization. After a year, it was, okay, we saw flashes like, wow, this kid can make uh, in throws yeah. that no one else can make. But will he ever settle down to be like the kind of quarterback and do it on a play-to-play basis? And obviously, we see that he can now. It's it's a remarkable um, you know thing that you point out there that infrastructure matters. You you know you know it in in your workplace. I know it in mine. Infrastructure matters. You can be bringing it as best you can, prepping here, having that natural talent. But if if there's a lot of dysfunction around you, you you're just stuck in the mud. I always Dan Marino is my favorite athlete ever. Sal, that doesn't go over very well in Orchard Park. I'm well aware of that. But nonetheless, um, he went to a team that made the Super Bowl the year before with David Woodley. So he goes in, my God, Don Shula, great offensive coordinator, the Marks brothers. He steps right into a great scenario. If he goes to a, a totally dysfunctional scenario, um, which, again, like you you, uh, you documented some of that with Brand, the Browns, the Raiders, the Lions, some of the teams that just can't get off the mat. Is he Dan Marino? Well, he's sort of Dan Marino, but he got to start being Dan Marino right away, and that helps. Yeah, and I'll tell you this. I think that Dan Marino's also a good comp in this, uh, in this scenario here where he went to a Super Bowl early in his career. You know, mm-hmm. he went to 80, in 84. He goes to the Super Bowl, and they lose to the, um, to the San Francisco 49ers. And I think, I thought, I think Dan Marino, at some point, I'd read something or uh, seen something where he goes, you know, I thought I'd go to the Super Bowl every year. It's like, <laughs> oh, you just show up and you go to the Super Bowl, right? And, but it's hard, though. He never went to another one. It's really hard, no matter how great you are. And he's one of the greatest quarterbacks ever. But you're right. And I think the Bills have learned those lessons, too, over the last few years about climbing the mountain again. Here they are again playing the Kansas City Chiefs a year after going to the AFC Championship game and losing to them. But it's been an up-and-down struggle this year at times this year where people really question them. They go to Jacksonville and they lose. It is not a birthright just to go into championship games and go to Super Bowls. Of course it's not. It's very, very hard. It takes a lot of people pulling in the same direction, being on the same page. Got to take some fortune to go your way as well. You got to stay healthy. It's a war of attrition. So here they are again. I think the Bills in this situation understand like, you know, there's no guarantee Josh Allen or anyone will ever even get back to this point, let alone a Super Bowl. And you have to really do what's at hand, take the task at hand very seriously to make sure that you take advantage of those opportunities. Well, I'm I'm glad you said that because yesterday was was Brady's 36th playoff win. The next guy on the list is Joe Montana with 16, and 11 human beings have won 10 games or more in the playoffs. Like if I if I walked around Orchard Park Saturday night and I said how many how many playoff wins does Jim Kelly have, Sal? And you already know the answer, but nine doesn't sound right. Four straight Super Bowls. They were good before that. Kind of okay a little after that. Nine. To, it's hard. It's hard to accumulate playoff victories. 100% it is, and those Bills teams in the 90s, that was part of the that was part of the whole like awe of what they did. I mean, no no team has ever gone to four straight Super Bowls other than them. They're the only team to ever do it. If the Chiefs get back this year, if they beat the Bills and they get back, it'll be three straight, and we'll be talking about it. It'll be a story next year that, wow, they'll have a chance to be the second team to ever go to four straight Super Bowls. Now, a couple other teams have gone to three straight Super Bowls, but that's a lot of football. That's a lot on your body. That's a lot of mental... Uh, you know, fortitude to kind of continue to go back, especially after you lose like they did. So you're right. I mean, it is hard to do. The Bills have a chance here. They have a great opportunity in front of them. Um, it's going to be a fantastic matchup. 
funny because we were told, Greg, it's interesting, in, in the game uh, Saturday night, we're inside the stadium, and we were told in the broadcast booth that, hey, prepare for the Bills to probably play Sunday at 3. Uh, that's probably where the NFL is going to place their window. And yeah, they, they, and even they figured it'd be at Kansas City, be at 3. Well, I think the NFL thought, okay, if everything holds and Dallas wins, that's Dallas-Tampa, they'll put them on um, the night game. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, or, or whatever. Or you know, or maybe it's the Rams or whatever. I think actually determined the Rams were already going to – the Rams-Cardinals winner was already going to play Sunday no matter what. But they were going to put them on at night because of the L.A. or the attractive matchup. I think once this game went the way it did on Saturday and then once what happened yesterday happened, the league said, no, 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 we got to have Mahomes-Allen and our prime window on divisional weekend. Well, that leads uh, final question for you. Does it feel, and of course it does in Buffalo, but if you took yourself out and put yourself in uh, in flyover country, as we say, would this feel like the de facto AFC championship? I don't want to dismiss Joe Burrow. I don't want to dismiss what Mike Vrabel's built in Tennessee, but I think we think that the AFC champion's coming out of this game. Yeah, I, I think that's what you're going to hear a lot all week from national and other markets. People are going to say, Whoever wins this game is probably going to the Super Bowl. I think that's what you're going to hear from a lot of people. But, again, like you said, you cannot dismiss what Joe and Jamar Chase are doing. Now, of course, for Bills fans, if the Bills were to win, obviously, and obviously they lose, the season's over. The Bills and their fans should want the Bengals to win to get that AFC Championship game at home, which would be a pretty incredible. <laughs> that would happen, absolutely. Yeah. If they have to go to Tennessee, if the Bills win and have to go to Nashville, remember what we just said to start this call exercising demons season, right? I mean, after losing there and, you know, the last couple of years, the way it's gone. Um, yeah, but I think I would like the Bills' chances in Nashville as well. So, yeah, don't dismiss them. You're right. But I, I think most people would agree that right now you're probably looking at the two most complete teams in the AFC playing against each other in Buffalo and Kansas City. I, th- I hear that loud and clear. Uh, safe travels to Kansas City uh, with Murph, with Eric Wood. Uh, we'll be listening. WGR 550. It, your station's great. All your people are great, and you, and you do things the right way. Thank you for making time for our audience today. Yeah, anytime, man. Don't be a stranger, and uh, everybody stay safe out there with the snow. I got tickets to my son to the Sabres game today. I don't even know if we're going to be able to get to the arena. <laughs> oh, it's a mat- and it's a matinee, isn't it? It is. It's a one o'clock game, so we're gonna try. Uh, thank that you called me, so my wife's shoveling. So I'll just take over her. Point, but I'll pretend the call went longer. Yeah. Well, don't put, don't post a picture of her shoveling. Those things go viral, and then uh, next thing you know, you know, you're on Outkick, and it's just it's not great. It's yeah, not great yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry. Don't worry about that. I'm gonna go help her. <laughs> thanks, Sal. Greatly appreciate it. Okay, guys. Thanks, Sal Capaccio from uh, WGR. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Monday, January 17th edition of Toronto Today. We'll be back with a live show tomorrow on 640 Toronto between 5.30 and 9. Until then, if you're snowed under, be careful. Stay home. Stay off those particular roads just for reasons of the snow. And uh, if you can help a neighbor or friend, please do so. People are so, so good. They're so much better than we give them credit for sometimes. You, me, everybody else. Thanks again for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.